Oh, for Christ's sake, Anakin. Hello and welcome to, yep, I'm calling it episode 50 of For Christ's Sake, Anakin. I'm your host, Matthew Neugebauer, coming to you live to air on this Tuesday, December 3rd, 2019. It's my mom's birthday. Uh, happy birthday to my mom, but among other things, it's also the Tuesday after the first Sunday of Advent. And I'm recording live to air here in this beautiful recording studio at the City Centre Reference Library here in Vaughan, Ontario. Communities called Maple here in the Toronto suburbs. Uh, the city above Toronto is Vaughan's nickname. Uh, yeah, and all you need is a library card and you can be good to go. I am experimenting with different game levels and trying to figure out what works best, even in with my headphones. Hopefully, uh, hopefully that sounds all right. I'm going to take the headphones off though. Just, just trying to work this out in a new space here. So it being Advent, I'm going to talk about prophecy and John the Baptist and Qui-Gon yet again. I, I've recorded previous times about uh, John the Baptist and Qui-Gon in episode one with Anakin and the Chosen One, prophecy. I'm going to talk about prophecy and the occasion for that, there's two occasions for that. I definitely do one day want to do a whole episode specifically on Claudia Gray's Master and Apprentice, uh, just looking at what the prophecies of, of the Chosen One themselves are. I know the folks over at Clashing Sabres did a, did a an article on that a while back when the book came out a few months ago. Goodness, it would have been a number of months ago now. But I, I did read it. I haven't really gotten to doing that episode yet. Things got in the way. Life happens. I Just to let you know, I don't have my water bottle with me. So if my voice starts to get a little hoarse, just bear with me. Uh, things you, you think about and you don't think about when you're going to a new space. So anyway, the, th the reason I did want to really sit down and record uh, is yet again a few weeks ago the whole Donald Trump chosen one thing came up. In this case, uh, this is the second time that's really come up. In the first time, I'll, I'll go back to the first time, uh, there was a uh, commentator about Zionism, Israel, uh, you know, the state of Israel and politics and how everybody loves Trump over in Israel. And this, this commentator said, oh, yeah, they love him like the Messiah, like the chosen one, like the king of Israel. And, uh, and that was a fun moment to reflect on, which I did over on the Beltway Banthas as my Bantha fodder. A fun moment being, oh, great, <laughs> I can bring up the chosen one and how horrible it is to apply that to Trump in this context. The, uh, the second instance more recently is Rick Perry uh, giving Trump a bit of a Bible study on the kings of Israel and how they were chosen by God to uh, lead the nation in righteousness. And this sort of language that uh, gets picked up in some circles, some charismatic evangelical circles, to apply to rulers they, whose policies they happen to like. Uh, it's, <laughs> you can tell what I think about it. What's fascinating, of course, is the connections to 
Anakin and the prequel trilogy and using the phrase chosen one. And that that's interesting because, of course, the phrase in the Bible is Messiah, anointed one. And uh, I'll dive into that right now. And, of course, in ancient Israel, what that typically referred to was were really the descendants of David and the kings of Judah. And the reason they were called that is because they were anointed, literally oil would get dumped onto them as a sign by, by a prop, the prophet and the, the, the high priest and uh, as a sign that God had chosen them and set them apart. It was a sign of consecration for this office that was about quote-unquote temporal matters, but if you're the chosen people, it's never just temporal matters. It's how to live as God's people in the world. Uh, we, we have the great, of course, the great example of this Samuel going to Jesse's sons, finally coming upon David, anointing him, and David wouldn't actually be in the position to take the crown, take the throne on, for a number of decades later when he was chased around by Saul, who was the king, and David himself had a very strong sense. You don't actually harm the Lord's anointed even if he's trying to harm you. <laughs> uh, it, get, it does get picked up later in, and I'm not saying, and I'm, well, you know, there's harm and then there's disagreeing and wanting him out of office. And in a democracy, we can want someone out of office without bringing them to harm. <laughs> That's not something that happened in the ancient world, believe it or not. Um, this does get picked up Famously, thinking of, of, of Solomon's coronation while David's still alive, but he effectively abdicates on his deathbed and, or in his old age. And you know, the, the famous coronation anthem by Handel, Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anointed Solomon king. Amidst all the other rival claimants to the throne, Solomon's older half-brothers, etc. So... Where does this lead? And I'm just giving you this backstory here. The funny thing is with the kings of Judah, the kings of Israel, none of them, uh, at least according to the, uh, the account, the historical account we have in scripture, and I'll get to what that's all about in a bit. In a bit. But uh, the kings of Judah... Were, well, sorry, the kings of Israel in the northern kingdom, when the kingdom split after Solomon, they never fulfilled their calling. Uh, there was rampant idolatry, and idolatry, of course, linked with injustice, linked with the power games of the world, linked with oppressing the poor and the widows, and... Uh, you know, just giving into the system of the world that favored the wealthy over all the people as as Torah really called for in in various ways and yes there was a, a pristine vision of sacrifice and temple cults and, and the temple cult rather and of course they were in Samaria in the northern kingdom so how could they they were separate from the temple in Jerusalem that only becomes a real concern later 
with Hosea and the discovery of Deuteronomy. Uh, the Hosea being a descendant of of David in the, the the line of Judah, the king of Judah, finding Deuteronomy really we, scholars really believe they uh, it, well, he, it was it was written it was not Hosea sorry Josiah Hosea is a prophet Josiah is the king who institutes these widespread reforms. And there's two parts to this consolidating power in the temple in Jerusalem and by power I mean religious power as in the the spiritual imagination of the people but also Deuteronomy has very strong injunctions stronger than in the rest of Torah for caring for widows and orphans and foreigners coming in and and so he's considered one of the great kings who did follow in David's anointing. David himself, of course, very mixed. <laughs> and part of the point there is God maintains this call, this call to righteousness in spite of the various nefarious ways in which the kings got the people into trouble. Now, here's the thing, though, is this historical account, quote-unquote, yeah, we can talk about it having facts behind it and whatnot, history as we might know it today, but really what's fascinating, what's important to note is in, in the Hebrew Bible, the historical account, these historical books, uh, talking about Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings specifically, it's called the Deuteronomistic History because it's about the same concerns as Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy having the same concerns as the prophets that would later come and the prophets do show up. In, the, in Elijah and Isaiah do show up in this story. But of course they have uh, you know, Isaiah and uh you know, some a few of the others they they have the, of course Amos and Amos is in the Northern Kingdom and uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah especially <laughs> that's what I'm thinking of. brain fart Isaiah and Jeremiah big deal they uh, they show up and they have a part to play and Jeremiah specifically at the end of this story he reveals you know, in this story and then in his own in what collection of prophecies called Book of Jeremiah. Really what this story is about is about the decline. It's about naming what uh, what these systems and these kings have gotten themselves into abusing the, <laughs> the anointing and the authority they've been given. And so of course what it is is an explanation for the Babylonian exile. So, you know, the point I'm making here is we've got to be very careful about how we use this language of chosen one and prophecy. And the reason I'm making this point, or, or the language of chosen one and how we use prophecy, because prophecy can also be misunderstood. What the point of prophecy has often become these days 
is about a predict primarily about a prediction of the future and yeah there's a little bit in that and again with Isaiah for example there is uh, during the exile and after there's this hope of a prosperous land prosperous nation and so what I love about Claudia Gray's take on uh, the chosen one prophecies in master and apprentice is she's able to get at these types of complexities about what uh, what prophecy is about now that you know that the chosen one that the or, or she at least raises this thought I think by Qui-Gon and even by Dooku uh, there's gonna be spoilers <laughs> about this you know what if the people you know the people writing these prophecies were actually responding to events in their own time you know, what if they were uh, events that we don't know in canon yet but things that gave people reason to say a chosen one is going to come in this time of great darkness right the analog there of course was uh, you know, was the exile in Babylon for the ancient Judeans, and during that time, uh, they they were taken. You know, stripped the temples, stripped bare, and the elites, at least, were taken carried off to Babylon. The connection to the land was was broken, and very, uh, of course, you know, of course, it was broken. They were taken away, and their home from their homes and their their language and. Uh, you know this, this the laments of how can we praise our God in a strange land, and one of the ways they could do that, they could learn to praise their God in a strange land, was by holding on to this, this prophecy, this promise, I should say, given to David, that there would be a descendant on his throne forever. That there would be this this a descendant of David's who would come. And instead of all the, the mess and ambiguities of the politics of the world, would actually restore the kingdom to Judah, restore the kingdom to Israel. And he would be righteous. He would be uh, bring peace, and he would be this divine agent sent from God. And that's the key here. Uh, towards, you know, even after there was a return from exile, but they were always still under the foot of uh, of these foreign powers. People began to think, well, this may not be a matter of a political uh, arrangement where Judah will just go back to the golden age here. This might be a matter of life and death, of the end of time itself, that there are all these powers and forces out there that an anointed savior would come from God and would lead the armies of Israel against all these powers and would, uh, would vanquish them and all people would come to the mountain of the Lord and worship God in Jerusalem, restoration of this temple cult. And there, but that would be the end of time. That would be, eternal uh, what we're getting at is the rise of apocalypticism an apocalypse a form of prophecy that does talk about the future 
uh, a future perfection in the end of time. Now, yes, Jews and Christians really do believe in these things. I do believe in uh, the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. But the point of delving into them is really, again, to respond to the imperfections of our own time. Because we're often very tempted to make these claims about our, our, say, our nation or our community or uh, even about Star Wars, <laughs> to be honest, or... Uh, even I, I'm a bad social democrat so about social policies and political parties and politicians and uh, any you know we do this about corporations and experiences that are goods given by God but we make their claims for them uh, that they are the be all and end all I must do this I must do that that's one of the reasons, for example, why I actually appreciate the fact that the Jedi are celibate because at least says, you know, at least for some of them to be happy and satisfied and healthy. Why I, I, I'm not too much of a fan of shipping because at least it says there are other stories to tell, other types of relationships besides romantic ones, as if that is the only way for self-fulfillment. So what apocalyptic literature does, what this promise of a chosen one, the end of time does, says no to all these other claims to the absolute. And that's what's really sad and ironic about Rick Perry in uh, this whole fixation on Trump being the chosen one and not necessarily that they literally believe he's a descendant of David but that they believe he is sent by God to bring righteousness back to America this this man and you know it I it's hard for me to, I don't want to go straight into the the Anakin Vader parallel because I do believe there's something deeper there going on but it does speak to our propensity that Yoda does warn us about, right? And 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 Mace Windu does warn us about of saying we can read into prophecy what we want, what we think is right. We can uh, use prophecy that is meant to deconstruct or to limit, circumscribe these claims to the absolute. We can use them to bolster these claims to the absolute. And to be fair, that is the way uh, it was often taken, the direction it's often taken. It's the way Christian apocalypticism has been taken in uh, based throughout its history, which is unfortunate because that's not what the book of Revelation is about. You see, the thing about... Uh, with Christians looking at well, with Christians who of course all were Jews <laughs> Christianity is an apocalyptic form of Judaism at its core but it's this weird 
upside down flip because it's always through the lens of the crucifixion of Jesus. Crucifixion and then resurrection. The lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. And so we have to actually look at how Jesus lived on this earth, on this world. <laughs> and we look and see, does that fit with a, a violent ruler who wants to go vanquish armies? I mean, what? it's not that he doesn't get angry and do things that are images of violence. Going into the temple and flipping over all the tables of the money changers and getting kind of you can imagine the scene it's being it's being filmed of Jesus with a whip going mad in the temple trying to purify it for God and that is meant to be taken as an image of radical purification in like in the way that the Maccabees for example 100 years earlier did turn to violence and uh, that's a whole other <laughs> whole other concern but you know, there's this, these two questions or two deep problems with trying to apply the chosen one prophecy to, or, or trying to really ascribe Donald Trump to the special messianic agent, or even using it, using the text itself, right? Uh, the first one is actually you can't separate personal morality from. Uh, you know, from this anointing, right? Uh, Solomon, well, I don't know about Solomon. David's whole reign is marred and marked by his tendency toward violence, by his casual acceptance of the way his own daughter is raped by his son, right? The way women are treated by his own. Uh, his own treatment with Bathsheba and Uriah. It, it's marked by this as something definitely that holds him back as merely a shadow, as something that, as, as a check against absolutizing David. And so the personal morality of Donald Trump is fairly uh, fairly understood <laughs> fairly fairly known right I don't need to go into the 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 lugubrious details there but you can't bypass it and, and that's the concern the deeper can no well well not deeper an equally concerning thing is the way it represents this wholesale uh, just it's almost like they've given up on Jesus being their savior they really do believe America is their savior I know I'm being harsh I know I'm going for it but it's Advent come on I'm in a, I'm in a, a salty mood if you believe Donald Trump is an anointed savior by God then you do not believe Jesus Christ is the savior of the world because uh What's clear is he Trump represents this American nationalism 
that uh, is going to privilege white, wealthy, entrenched, established people. The very swamp that you're trying to drain, he, he is the swamp. And this is the swamp. Uh, given the policies, just cutting services for the rich, the, uh, the, the, the biggest thing of, of detaining these children, <laughs> you know, everything he's said and done about the immigrant population, it speaks to me of an attempt to keep America pure, right? Make America great again is really keep America pure from those outsiders who are going to overrun us. And, and and so I was just reading an article by Bill Kavanaugh, and I'll link to that in the description, that really looks at, uh, well, he, I mean, he, Kavanaugh's whole thing is, his whole academic project, I'd say, is contrasting religion with nationalism, as in contrasting worship of God to worship of America. And, uh, you know, again, we've seen it again with the, you know, the whole equation with Christmas as in Millennia Trump's tweet about Christmas being uh, this American patriotic thing. If you're going to sacrifice these kids coming across the border, regardless of why they're coming across the border, right? I mean, no, but we know why they're coming across the border. So parents carry them across the border. Parents have carried them across the border because if they stay where they are, they're going to die because the CIA went in and propped up dictatorial governments. And that's led to massive famine and uh, poverty and crime unchecked and of course government crime where people uh, any anyone who speaks against the government they just w are whisked away and they disappear so that's why people are escaping but the policies of ICE and of this administration have been to protect white America from uh, you know, from anyone who seeks safety and protection there. If that's the Messiah, the anointed Messiah you want, fine. Um, but it's not Jesus. <laughs> and that's the thing about Advent is about stepping up and proclaiming this. Trump is not anointed by God to restore America's greatness because God only sort of doesn't really care very much about America's greatness God really cares about people and if America as a political community can be mobilized into caring for people then God cares about people but God doesn't care about America for America's sake so what does that have to do with Star Wars and again, I'm, I'm hesitant because I don't want to contradict my past readings of Darth Vader as uh, being, you know, actually being the chosen one, the prophecy being true. But I can't help but, but think about Yoda's warning, a prophecy misread could have been 
Right. Mace Windu, it's very dangerous. <laughs> right. What we do see is Darth Sidious using this prophecy. Grooming Anakin, raising him up, using the prophecy to make Anakin think he's special. <laughs> when, in a way he is, in some ways he is, sure. But he's the beast. Or he, or, or he, yeah, he's the beast holding the puppet strings for everyone, right? Uh, holding puppet strings for Anakin, for, the, of course, the Senate, pulling all these strings, manipulating this chosen one figure into submitting to him. Why? Because he makes an, Anakin makes an absolute claim about his relationship with Padme. And yes, that is a beautiful relationship in, in a lot of ways. Um, and yes, it, it, he's right to be, to fear and to worry about her dying. But what's fascinating is we never, he never stops to ask, well, how might she die? And are there ways in which me trying to save her will actually end up with her death. Is me trying to claim to be the chosen one or rejecting the chosen one prophecy but taking all my power and becoming Darth Vader in order to save her, to have more power in order to save her, he doesn't stop to ask, what if power corrupts me? What if power has corrupted the Chancellor? Right. Now he isn't really asking anything about the will, the force there. And this isn't so much the Chosen One prophecy writ large, the problem, you know, bringing about the will of the force. But it definitely is the way this prophecy gets perverted and confused. At least for the time being, right? I mean, again, now I can go back into saying, well, actually, he's the chosen one because he's in the right place in order to overthrow Darth Sidious while Luke is there. Um, but you, you, one of the points underlying the prequel trilogy is this cautionary tale. Even something that Qui-Gon couldn't have predicted. Now, someone like with Qui-Gon's character... And young Annie's character, very generous and very caring, couldn't have predicted Qui-Gon's character, as in his personality, as in his integrity, couldn't have predicted what would happen. Maybe needed a bit more of Obi-Wan's realism there. But there is... Uh, you know, the sense that I don't know. I mean, I don't know if he could necessarily could have been trained earlier or later. That's not question there. Um, but a prophecy misread could have been it was quite unpresumptive in, uh, in in saying yes, this is him. Especially even in. Uh, 
using midichlorines is one of the proofs, right? And and I, I do love what George is saying about midichlorines. I do think it works. It'd be interesting to see. Actually, this is relevant, a relevant thought. It'd be interesting to see if they do are able to do anything with midichlorines in light in this the sequel trilogy's emphasis actually on the force being for everyone and uh, you know, the not being relegated to this this fine elite yeah. what if the prophecy of the chosen one is to bring about a time where an age where everyone actually begins to realize actually the force isn't just quantifiable by these midi chlorines or powers in a video game video game as Luke says it's not lifting rocks as Ryan Johnson says it's not a superpower what if that's part of this this era but about by the chosen one to bring balance to the force but in the moment in the time even with Qui-Gon even with the Jedi, especially with the Jedi Council, who depend and their interests depend so much, or their position depends so much on being the ones with the power, with the spiritual power and the political power that goes with it. They can't see that this prophecy of the Chosen One has anything other to, other than to do with this person with all the midi-chlorians ushering in an age where where the Jedi are ascendant. Where ancient Israel is ascendant. Where America is ascendant. Right. Now again, Qui-Gon, he could see some of this coming up. And he was, I think he was hoping for some of this, right? This age of balance where peace and justice would return to the galaxy and so he does stand as you know especially the way his response to the Jedi Council right the way he refuses to actually play play ball toe the party line did no I, I you know there's the beautiful one shot comic where he can foresee this war and uh it just wants no part of it and it's deeply disturbing to him and so yeah I think that's partly what's going on with him in seeing Anakin as the chosen one see but even then the Jedi believing that they are the chosen ones is what ultimately leads to their downfall no one in this whole time really takes prophecy except for Qui-Gon no one in this whole era, period really the prequel trilogy really takes prophecy for what it ought to be namely a check against our absolute claims and namely a call to submit to the will of the force that is beyond us so yeah that was <laughs> A bit too, a bit saltier than I'm used to, uh, but you know, again, it's Advent, and it's a time of focus, and it's a time of turning our attention 
to the way that time has its time. There's a time to build up and a time to tear down. And both were free for both to be true at the same time. Right? This isn't the time to talk about the time. We don't have the time. Well, yeah, we do have the time. And we're in a funny time where these things are playing out in front of us in the real world. Things are hopefully playing out in front of us in Star Wars. And we'll see in a few weeks how the end of this time known as the Skywalker Saga really comes to the fore. So this has been episode 50 of For Christ's Sake Anakin. Uh, you can give me a follow at on in Twitter at, at NEUG485. Give me a follow on Instagram at uh, MNEUG1138. I also do have a blog up. I go into things about episode 9 and Bendemption, and I'm going to write another thing about the Mandalorian. That's at xastrisapientia.blogspot.com. Yeah, I believe. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, taking that that medium to written medium doing both podcasting and blogging see if that works uh, I also hope the audio worked out here uh, it is always a little different in a different space but anyway we make do um, I hope it wasn't too offensive I hope it was able to hear what I'm getting at if you could or you couldn't, let me know. <laughs> Either way. This is your host, Matthew Niegebauer, signing off on episode 50 of For Christ's Sake, Anakin. Thanks for listening. May the Force be with you always. <laughs>